Uh, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Dr. Gary Brandenburg serves as the International Spiritual Development Officer for Mercy Ships. Uh, Gary grew up in California and then attended OSU. Any OSU folks here? I'm sorry. Man, I'm so sorry. Yeah, tomorrow? Okay, that's right. He's coming. OSU. Uh, as a baseball player, got a scholarship there and then played some years in the professional leagues. What teams? Orioles, okay, out in Baltimore, very good. And then after that, went on and got his MDiv from Trinity uh, in Chicago and his doctorate of ministry from Gordon-Conwell in Boston. Dr. Brandenburg has been a church planner in California, a senior pastor at Grace Community College, uh, excuse me, Community Church in Tyler, Texas, and lead pastor at Fellowship Bible Church Dallas, which is where most of us know you from. And, uh, and he currently serves as adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary as a member of the board of directors for Pine Cove Christian Camps. And most importantly, he's been married to Janice since 1977, have three children and five grandchildren. And uh, Gary, I have to tell you that uh, Kevin Goldsmith was reminding me that when we were in school, uh, you would do brown bag sessions with the students on Wednesdays. And uh, just in case you're wondering, not a lot of pastors made themselves available like that to students. And it just shows you the kind of, of character we really appreciate with Gary. So Dr. Brandenburg, thank you so much for being here. Psalm 32, good call. Glad I could help. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. And uh, so thrilled to be here and to be part of uh, this project you all have going on. Uh, this project of cathedral building. Uh, you're all cathedral builders. And I, I recognize that as I come this morning uh, in a time in which you are handing the baton uh, from Andy to the new lead pastor. And uh, that's the way it ought to be. Uh, that's what I did two years ago. So Andy and I have had a lot of discussions about that. I think of the people that came before him, people that I greatly admire. Uh, Bill Bryan, who was just, I loved that man. Uh, although I was constantly admonishing him. Some of you may not know this. Did you know his real name was Gary? And, uh, but he went by Bill. I think it was Gary William Bryan. And he told me that. And I said, why would you desert such a noble name as Gary, but uh, uh, Mike Fisher was a good friend and, and, uh, and then uh, of course uh, along came Andy and we've had a good relationship over the years. I've been in this building before, you've got a nice place here, I did a memorial service here once and uh, it's not exactly a cathedral, but I just wanna remind you that that's the business that we're in. We're called to build a cathedral. I don't, if you've never been to a cathedral, let me just fill you in. The way that the cathedrals were designed, when you walk into a cathedral, I'll give you a test question. You should think of the answer very quickly. When you, some of you have been there, when you walk into a cathedral, where do your eyes go? I mean, you can't help it. Your eyes are drawn upward. And uh, that's the beauty of the old cathedrals. We don't do that much anymore. Uh, go into a mall and look at the ceiling. Ductwork and pipes and everything painted black. But in the old cathedrals, you would go in and your eyes were forced upward. I think that's a, that's a good practice. And uh, we've been helped in doing that today is to, to, to force our lives and, and our, our eyes upward as we worship the Lord. The, the, the interesting thing about cathedral building is that the person who began the cathedral, you know for sure, is not going to see the end product. I mean, St. Peter's Cathedral, it took 120 years to build it. 
I thought that was a long time till I visited the cathedral in Orvieto. The cathedral in Orvieto took 380 years to complete. Can you imagine that? So the person that started that cathedral, here's what they would do. They would hope and pray for a son so that the man who was the tradesman that was started building the cathedral could then train his son and pass that on. And then that son, well, he would pass it on to his son and they would pass it down from generation to generation until the project was complete. We are cathedral builders. You have a mission as a church. Now, I know you have a mission statement. I don't even know what it is. But I know you have one because all churches have to have one. I don't know how this happened, but about 30 years ago, churches said, well, you know, Burger King has a mission statement. We ought to have one too. <laughs> and so we started getting real creative and it was an exercise in wordsmithing and, and, and alliteration and, and we'd come out with our mission. And then we'd put it on the wall and you know, you all know the story, the plaque on the wall is no match for the behavior down the hall. So we, but we would put something up there on the wall that would express our mission statement. Can I just remind you, whatever your mission statement is, it's something like this. Our calling is to faithfully transfer the gospel from one generation to the next. That's your job as a church. That's your job as an individual. That's particularly your job if you're a mother or father. Faithfully transferring the gospel from one generation to the next. I've chosen a passage this morning in which you see this and you hear this cathedral builder talk about it because these are the words of the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Comes from the second chapter of 2 Timothy. We feel pretty confident that these are the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul before he leaves this earth. And so in 2 Timothy chapter two, he says this to young Timothy, not his biological son, but his child in the faith. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, pass these things on to faithful individuals. Entrust them to faithful individuals who be able to teach others also and pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. Share in suffering with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. No athlete is crowned unless that athlete is competing according to the rules. And, and it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Timothy, think about these things. And I'm confident that, that God will give you understanding in this as you grow and as you mature. And then maybe the best advice of all right there in verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, because that was his mission, to call these apostles and to deposit information to them that would be passed on from generation to generation until it got to us. So we're gonna talk about cathedral building. As memorable as verse two is, it's sort of a restatement of the Great Commission. I wanna focus on verse one because I read past that verse so many times to get to verse two. And it hasn't been that long ago that I stopped and thought about what is he saying in verse one? Timothy, 
You need to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's, it's, it's a simple verse about a very complex subject. Grace is our greatest resource. No one can, no church can succeed, no individual can, can succeed in fulfilling their calling without grace. So, what is it? It's, it's kind of an abstract term, isn't it? Have you noticed? I mean, as church-going people, there are a lot of words that we become accustomed to, and a lot of times we don't have any idea what they mean. I was a teenager when I became a Christian and started going to church and, and I remember in that church and we'd stand up and we'd sing that great hymn, bring forth the royal diadem. And I remember standing there going, what is that? And who's bringing it in here? And do we need one? I mean, so there's a lot of words like that that we use, we don't exactly know what, grace is kind of an abstract concept, and it's a challenge to get a grip on grace because of that. For example, some people look at grace and they see it as kind of a, a hall pass. Uh, I can do anything I want because God is a God of grace. Have you ever noticed this, that two people can look at the exact same thing and come away with two greatly different understandings? <laughs> this really came home to me. Uh, I've been married 43 years, and, and uh, my, my wife and I, on year 30, anniversary 30, we decided we would just go for it, and our, my daughter, our daughter is in the hotel business, so she arranged this fabulous resort in Hawaii that we could stay in for a week, and uh, we'd never been to Hawaii. We were so excited to get to Hawaii. And we got to Hawaii, and you know how your clock gets all messed up when you fly that distance and so the first night, I mean, I wake up at three in the morning and I, I mean, I can't sleep. I, so I get on my resort clothes and uh, I decide to go for a walk, throw on a shirt and walking around through the resort area, uh, smelling the plumeria, hearing the waves, uh, this is so cool. And, and, and until about five, 5.30 in the morning, nothing's open and I'm starting to get that, I don't know if any of you get this, but you know, the coffee craving, you know, I gotta find some coffee somewhere. So I'm looking around, I'm walking all over the place, I can't find any place that's open or any place that has coffee. And all of a sudden I see a light come on, kind of a little boutique shop. And so I go, well maybe they got coffee. So I go over there and I walk in, there's nobody in there, lights are on. And I'm standing in the front of the store and I look at the rear and, and from the rear of the store comes the cutest young Hawaiian girl, big smile on her face. And she just walks right up to me and says, fallopian tubes. Now, I've never been to Hawaii. I don't know what the customs are. I don't know, I, do, do I answer with a body part? I mean, what, what I'm not. And so I said, I beg your pardon, because at first I thought, well, maybe she knows I'm a preacher, and she's saying, Philippians too, but that's not, no. And I said, I beg your pardon, she said, fallopian tubes. I was stumped. And then I realized what had happened. In the dark, in the middle of the night, I just grabbed a shirt, and I, back then I was cycling a lot, and I had just finished riding in the hotter than hell 100 a few days before. 
And this 100-mile bike ride, you, you know, you go to Wichita Falls and ride in the heat for 100 miles for no apparent reason. So I just finished that ride, and I had a shirt that had the logo of the ride on it, and she was looking at that shirt. I brought a picture of that shirt. Take a look at what she was looking at. Now, you tell me. I don't know. I, I, I never took anatomy. Uh, those fallopian tubes. I, I, I'm pretty sure they don't have brakes on them. Uh, and that's what she was looking at. I walked out of there. By the way, I never put that shirt on again the whole week. I thought, no way. And I was reminded, two people, you can look at the same thing. And, and that's what we do with Grace. Some people like the word grace because I could do anything I want because you know God is God of grace and I know I messed up and I know I made mistakes and I know I do a lot of terrible things. But you know what? He'll forgive me because he's full of grace. That's what I call grace gone wild. Other people, other people, this is the, I think this is even more serious. They view grace as gap insurance. Some of you are in the business, you know what gap insurance is. The idea is, look, I know God is perfect, I acknowledge that, and I know I'm not. But I gotta work hard to do the best I can, and God's gonna see me really working at it and doing the best I can, and I know I'll never reach the goal, but, but I'll get as far as I can, and whatever's left in between, that's where grace goes. That's not grace. Well, what is it? Well, the most simple definition is a pretty good one. We still use it, God's unmerited favor. Um, God's undeserved kindness. But it is uh, more than that. In fact, uh, you cannot accomplish your calling or the mission that God has laid before you without the grace of God. I'll give you some examples. What are some gifts of God's grace? I'll just give, mention four of them. First of all, and you know this, this is probably the first thing that would come to mind. You are saved by grace. That's right out of the passage we saw earlier in the service. For by grace, you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest you get proud at how good you are at those works and start boasting about it. No, you are saved by grace through faith. Can I just mention to you, this is a little bit, this sort of reveals a little bit of the, I hate to call it a heresy, but a little incomplete thinking by those of us that are good Bible church conservative Christian people because I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, you're saved by faith. No, you're not. That's not what the passage says. You are saved by grace through faith. In other words, right in that verse, the apostle Paul does a brilliant thing. He shows us that the Christian life is a partnership. That God does what only God can do. He initiates the whole thing of salvation. You don't. I don't know how I got into this thing. I mean, I, I was a teenager growing up in a home where my parents had no interest in the things of God and it was a very loud home and it was a very contentious home until across the street, my neighbor, good friend of mine, his, I used to like, I hung out there all the time because his place was, it was so different over there. And one day, uh, they invited me to go to a movie. And I didn't have a driver's license yet, so, you know, when you get invited to go somewhere, you go. 
I didn't know it was a Billy Graham movie. I didn't even know who Billy Graham was. It was kind of one of those cheesy, a few years ago, we wanted to show it to our kids to show how it impacted me. It was so bad. (laughs) But man, did God use that. And, And at the end of the movie, Billy Graham comes on and he talks about this problem we have and he describes sin. I'm going, whoa, that's me. And he talks about this, the remedy for sin. And I go, I want that. And I ran down to the front of that auditorium, just surrendered my life to Christ, not even knowing what had exactly happened, but I, I knew something had happened. And I went to the pastor of my friend's church and I said, is there any way you could come to my house and explain to my mom and dad what happened? And to his eternal credit, um, he came to my house. I still remember where we all sat and he just went through the gospel with my dad and my dad got on his knees and prayed to receive Christ. And that man was baptized at the exact same time I was. We were baptized together. He had a rough background and he had a lot of sanctification to do. But before he died, he said to me, son, never forget your first act of ministry was leading me to Christ. And I look forward to seeing him again. That, 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 I don't know how I got in that. It's just God's grace. He found me. So the initiative was on God's part. By grace, you are saved. He initiates the process. However, you have to respond. By grace, you're saved. Through faith, you have to trust that what this book says is true. You have to trust that the, what God promises will come about. And so grace it is that saves us. One author says, Christian salvation is never our attainment, a prize after a long struggle while God waits for us. No, he comes to us and wakes us out of sleep. It is always a gift of grace. So grace saves us, but then we go on from there because grace doesn't leave us there. Grace sanctifies us. A lot of times I find Christian people who, they know that grace saves us. They know that you're saved by grace through faith. But when it comes to the sanctification process, they they get busy and they gotta work really hard. In other words, they got saved over on Mount Calvary, but then they run back to Mount Sinai so that they can keep the rules. Some of you are commuters. (laughs) No, don't, It's, it's God's grace that sanctifies us. This is what Paul says to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right, we already covered that. Then he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you're not only saved by grace, But the process of spiritual formation is all part of God's grace. The third thing that grace does for us is grace strengthens us. I mean, I'm sorry, grace equips us for service. And you're gonna see how Peter came to this conclusion in 1 Peter chapter four. He says this is a much older man. He had to learn this in the passage we're gonna look at here in a minute. But in 1 Peter chapter four, he says, as each one of us has received a The translation I'm thinking of says, as each one of us has received a special gift. We use two English words to translate the one Greek word, which is charisma or charismata. Charis 
is the Greek word for grace. Peter says, each one of us has received a charisma, in other words, a manifestation of the grace of God. As each one has received that, employ it, put it to work, serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted, very variegated, multicolored grace of God. Here's what, here's what Peter's saying. You can't see grace. It's abstract, it's invisible. But here's the deal. When you experience the grace of God and when God's grace hits your life, it takes on a specific form. I learned this, I, I, my mind went back to seventh grade when our science teacher says to the class, what color is light? I don't know, what color is light? I, clear? Uh, is that a color? Uh, uh, white? Uh, uh, and all of us were stumped by the question until he reached over and he grabbed a prism and he took that prism and held it toward the light. And all of a sudden, that light that was coming from above was diffused in the whole spectrum of color. He says, that's the color of light. But we couldn't see it. Grace is like that. You, are, you can't even be a follower of Jesus without having experienced grace. But when it hits your life, that invisible grace of from God takes on a particular form and you experience a particular kind of expression or gift, a charisma, a manifestation of grace. Um, and that's how we are equipped for service. So grace saves us and grace sanctifies us and grace equips us for service. But then we go back to the passage and Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, <laughs> grace strengthens us. When, when, when you receive the grace of God, you are strengthened by it. Because folks, look, here's the reality of the gospel. And, and I know this is a church that understands this and communicates this. Don't stop. There's only one kind of Christian. Messed up, falling down, failing constantly, but clinging desperately to God's amazing grace. I, I've got nothing to offer, but God has everything I need. I mean, literally, I was up this morning sitting at my desk and saying, God, I, I don't know what I have for these people, but based on what I'm preaching this morning, I desperately need your grace to communicate your thoughts through what my words um, the source of our strength is the grace of God. And I think one of the biggest challenges for any of us as Christians is to accept our limitations and learn to, to rely on God's strength. We, we, before we preach the gospel to others, we better get it right ourselves. This is what we mean when we say preach the gospel to yourself every day. And unfortunately, there are far too many Christians who don't have a firm grip on grace. So, okay, so how do I get it? How do I know I have it? Well, I wanna invite you to turn to a memorable passage of scripture in John chapter 13. It's part of what uh, 
theologians call the upper room discourse, which is John 13 through 17. I've always wondered who came up with that because they're in the upper room in 13 and 14 and then they leave, but they still call 13 through 17 the upper room discourse. I guess because the discourse is continuing on over to the Garden of Gethsemane. But there in John chapter 13, you remember the scene. I don't even have to set it up for you. I mean, they're at table, uh, they're reclining like they did in typical Middle Eastern fashion. And all of a sudden to everyone's shock and surprise, Jesus gets up, puts a towel around his waist and kneels down and starts to wash their feet. I mean, think about this. What 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 if Andy, on his last Sunday before he rode into the sunset, What if he came down from here and started going around the room one by one and washing your feet? Awkward. (laughs) Right? If you've ever done a foot washing, which is easier, to give or receive? I don't know about you, I'd much rather give because I'm in control. So Jesus, look at chapter 13, verse six. He came to Simon Peter. Well, of course he did. I'm so thankful for Simon Peter. I mean, he, I feel so much like Peter. He's such a blurter. I've got five grandkids, unfortunately, have the same gene. Nothing goes into their heads that doesn't come out their mouth. And and I'm a blurter like Simon Peter. And and, and Peter, when Jesus comes to him, he says, what, wait, whoa, 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 Lord, you're gonna wash my feet? I mean, I I think he says this out of partly shock, but partly, if anybody should be washing anyone's feet, I should be washing yours, and you're gonna wash my feet? So I want you to see this because Peter questions the grace of God. That's the first mistake he makes. By the way, he always makes mistakes in threes. So Peter questions the grace of God. What do you suppose is going on here? Do you wash my feet? Here's what's going on. I think what's going on is when it gets right down to it, grace insults our pride. I need to do something. I need to show you I'm worthy of it. I need to be deserving of this act. And grace insults our pride. And it is pride that disqualifies us from participation with Jesus. I love what Jesus says. Um, Okay, Peter, here's the deal. What I'm doing, I know you don't get it. You, You don't understand this right now. But later on, you will remember this moment and you will understand. And sure enough, he did finally understand what was happening, that Jesus was doing something for him that he could not do for himself. By the way, that's the definition of grace. Grace is God doing for you what you could never do for yourself. You can't save yourself. And so he says, Peter, you don't understand this right now. Eventually you will. And so you would think Peter would go, okay, I'm good then. No, 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 no. But we desperately need God's grace. But like Peter, we prefer to earn it. Uh, R.C. Sproul says it's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. 
We don't wanna live by a heavenly welfare system. We wanna earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. Randy Alcorn says, because grace is so incomprehensible, we bootleg in conditions so we don't look so bad and God's offer won't seem so counterintuitive. By the time we're done qualifying the gospel, we're no longer unworthy and powerless. We're just misguided souls and we're no longer wretches. And guess what? And grace is no longer grace. I love what Keller says. He says, if you wanna become a Christian, all you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. Most of us come with our recommendation letters, our resumes, our morality, our money, and grace is God's gift to us. Peter questions the grace of God, but he's not done yet. That's why it's often said about Peter, Jesus had to wash his feet because he had him in his mouth so many times. So he first, he, he questions the grace, but notice verse eight, he refuses the grace. I mean, he doubles down. And in verse eight, Peter says to, uh, to him, never. Wow. By the way, if you call him Lord, you'll never use a couple words. You'll never use the word no and never use the word never. <laughs> never shall you wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus answered him. And I think, you know, this is the part of, that's difficult when we read the scriptures because we aren't there. And so we can't picture this. I mean, we can kind of imagine it, but, you know, we don't see what was going on in the room. And I suspect that when Peter says this, he's so assured of it, so self-assured, never shall you wash my feet. I think Jesus gave him that look. It's kind of like the look my mom used to give me. She didn't have to say anything. You know, when my mom would give me that look, I knew, okay, I need to back down here. And I think Jesus looks at him that way. Notice what Jesus says. He says, um, Peter, if I don't wash you, if you don't let this happen, if you don't learn to receive from me, you will have no part with me. Now read that correctly. He doesn't say you'll have no part in me. This is not an issue of whether he's really saved or not. This is an issue of whether he's going to be qualified to participate with Jesus in his mission on the earth. And he says, if you don't learn to receive this, you're gonna have no part with me. So he's not quite finished yet because Simon Peter questions God's grace, refuses God's grace, and finally confuses God's grace. Because look at verse nine. Um, Lord, okay, 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 I give, I give. Uh, okay, then just don't wash my feet. Wash my head, my hands, just give me a bath. And Jesus being patient says to him, no, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. In other words, Peter, you, 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 you've already heard my words and you've already put your faith in them. You believe what I've said. You're good, but you have got 
to appropriate my grace every single day because you'll forget. So how do you get the grace of God? I know I need it. I know these gifts that are associated with it. I know that today is gonna, this week is gonna be a hard week. I know that there's a lot of stuff that I'm, that's required of me that I'm not sure I can do on my own. I need some help. And I need to be strong in the grace of God. So how do I get God's grace? Well, here's what Peter learned through this experience. Because he tells us in 1 Peter chapter five, he explains what he learned. Remember, you don't know what I'm doing for you now, but someday you will. And Peter finally gets it and he says, you younger men, he's an old man now, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to whom? The humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in proper time. So in other words, what he's inviting his listeners to do is to humble themselves. See, you can either humble yourself voluntarily or guess what? You will be humbled involuntarily because it's the only way to appropriate God's grace. So we can humble ourselves or we can, in our pride, go do things in our own strength and in our own way and suddenly we will discover that we will be humbled in our weaknesses. And in that moment, God's grace is freely given even to the weak. Paul recognized that. He said, my grace, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. By the way, nobody wants to be weak. I mean, this is why nobody has a Facebook account with a picture of themselves from 7.30 in the morning when they wake up. You don't put that one on there. Because we don't wanna be weak. And so he says, I would rather boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I don't want to admit my weaknesses, but I know that change is not found in defending my own righteousness, but in admitting my weakness and crying for help. Um, you know, we, if, if, if we've learned nothing else in this past year, we've, we have discovered or rediscovered the fact that in, in our high-tech world, we, we expect all flaws to be fixed. I mean, surely there's a scientist, an expert, a guru, a book, a program, somebody that has a pill for my problem or somebody that has a vaccine to fix me. Somebody's got to have that. But there are times when uh, all we have is the promise of God in our weakness. The promise of a God who says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is all sufficient. My grace is what you need right now and it's what you'll need tomorrow and it's what you'll need a thousand tomorrows from now. God is glorified through our weakness. My weakness is a platform for God's strength. I love the words of Hudson Taylor. Some of you know that great missionary statesman 
that started China Inland Mission. And one day someone asked him, how is it that God seems to have used you in such a major way? You've had so much success on the mission field. And he said, <laughs> thoughtfully, he said, you know, it seemed to me that God looked over the whole earth to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when at last he found me, he said, he's weak enough, he'll do. So as recipients of God's, God's grace, we're to extend favor or kindness to those who don't deserve it or can never earn it because that's how we got here. And that's what we're called to do. Um, sometimes a concept like grace is better felt than telt. Uh, and I close with something which happened to me a couple years ago, which gave me a whole new appreciation for grace. My wife and I were invited to go to a party. The, the, the woman was turning 60 and, and her birthday is on the same day as my birthday. And so they were gracious enough to invite us to come. And uh, this man did very well in oil and gas and they have a ranch and he actually built a whole building for this party and had a dance floor and he invited a band, a country western band and a, like a country western caller uh, that came out to teach us the, you know, two-step and stuff and, uh, you, know, um, you know, during COVID when we were all locked down, I got addicted to to, to country dancing, and my wife put me in a two-step program. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I told you I'm a blurter. That just came to my. Uh, so so we were there for this, and and you know everybody's out there learning, and I'm learning the Cotton Eye Joe, and you know I'm I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good learning. I'm you know I got a little coordination, so I'm out there dancing, doing stuff that I've never done before, and they're teaching me how, and I'm out there with my wife, who she loves to dance. I can take it in very small doses, so I'm out there doing the dancing, and I get tired. Have you noticed this, ladies, men can run like 10 Ks and ride their bike 100 miles but there's something that happens to them either on the dance floor or when they walk into Pier 1 Imports and suddenly <laughs> they gotta sit down, they're tired. So I'm tired, so I go over and I sit on this wall right there and watching everybody else dance and my wife comes and joins me and I'm watching and there's this man out there and I, it was kind of, I mean, it was sort of humorous, but I mean, he, he was terrible. I mean, he, he was so uncoordinated. And as he's trying to do some of these things, he just obviously doesn't have what I have. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing all this stuff. And he's got this young girl with him, turns out to be his daughter. And I think, man, this has got to be hereditary or something because she's doing the same thing. And I thought, what are they doing out there? Feeling pretty good about myself. Be careful, right? And my wife says to me, isn't that wonderful? And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Look at this. Did you not see me out there? You know, and you think that's wonderful? And I didn't say all that. You know, your mind just goes through this really fast. I'm kind of full of myself and, and thinking, why is she thinking that's so wonderful? And, and then she goes, oh, you don't know. I said, I don't know what. She says, that man had a brain aneurysm this past year. And he came to this, they didn't think he would walk. And he came because now he wants to dance with his little girl. And she's out there copying every step. 
So humbled. Because I, I realized what I was seeing. I wasn't just seeing a man recovered from a brain aneurysm and his little girl copying his moves. I saw God that day in the dance in the form of a young woman who accommodated herself to her daddy because she loves him. And I want you to never forget that God looked down from heaven and he saw your wounded condition and he saw my wounded condition and we are all ravaged by the wages of sin and our brains are permanently scrambled and our bodies are daily decaying and we all have a mortal wound that we will not recover from because you're not getting out of this thing alive. But rather than abandon us, God came near. He sent his only begotten, nail-scarred son to come to earth and invite us to dance. That's grace. My daughter, uh, when she was a teenager, she had some lyrics to a country song on her wall and I never really, I'm not a big country western fan and I, I never really appreciate it um, uh, until I saw that man at the dance and then I remembered the words of that song. I, in fact, I looked them up, I wrote them down. I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Whenever one door closes, I hope that one more opens. Promise me that you'll give grace a fighting chance and when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, oh, I hope you dance. I hope you dance, Grace Bible Church. Clothe yourselves with humility. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we'll all represent him together. Father, thank you for this reminder today of such a profound theological truth. Thank you for putting it on the bottom shelf, performing what you did in that upper room so that we cannot escape the fact that there are some things that we need to just be quiet and receive from you. I pray everyone in this room will give up on their own self-efforts and I pray that even this morning if someone has not just simply said thank you Jesus and received the gift of grace from you that they'll do it today. I pray for the new pastor of this church. I thank you for the past, those who have been faithful to bring us to this day and now the baton is being passed just as Paul was passing into Timothy. And I pray for glorious days in the future for this church as this place is a beacon of your grace. And I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.